on today's show, Premier Jason Kenney joins us to talk about yesterday's decision to remove the restriction exemption program. We'll also talk with Dr. Peter Sr. about an Alberta government decision to now cover some life-changing diabetes monitors and a number of the participants in the bipartisan committee to study opioid overdoses in Alberta have decided they don't want to be part of that committee. Premier Jason Kenney joins us now to discuss the plan that he laid out last night, uh, a plan to remove the remaining restrictions very quickly and end the restriction exemption program immediately. Um, Premier, first of all, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you doing this, doing this for us. Good to be here. Um, I want to try and understand the timing of this announcement. Uh, it was January 28th, you said you were looking at the end of March. Um, first week of February, you said you're looking mid-February or end of February. And now we're up to, we're doing this now in terms of the restriction exemption program. Uh, you were asked, of course, you know, what about the protesters in Coots? How much pressure? did that cause? The leadership review, how much pressure did that cause? You say it didn't. That didn't force your hand. So what caused the change in the timeline for you? Well, just a small correction, Shay. I said that uh, back in September, when we brought in the restriction exemption or proof of vaccination program, that it would end uh, by the, before the end of the first quarter of this year. When I was asked about it on January 28th, I said, uh, that's still the case, but I hope we could do it a whole lot earlier. And indeed, I had in my mind mid-February, uh, on Je- December 28th, our COVID cabinet committee came to a unanimous consensus that the restriction exemption program uh, was no longer serving the purpose that it was originally created for and that we should repeal it as soon as we reasonably could. It was created for two reasons. One, uh, to help reduce transmission at a time when vaccines really were uh, helping to protect against transmission and uh, um, minor infection. Secondly, to get vaccination rates up. Well, it did help get vaccination rates up. We went from like 78 to 90% on the first dose coverage. But that's been frozen now for almost two months. And secondly, uh, Shay, I think you know that the, the situation has changed. Omicron is a lot more transmissible than Delta was. And uh, the vaccines are waning in terms of their ability to protect against infection transmission. This means that the policy is no longer serving a useful useful purpose. And I don't think we should keep a a policy that's not working any longer in place because a a few people are protesting. We've got 38 truckers at the Coots border crossing itself versus 60,000 truckers who are doing their jobs every day. We're not going to let people breaking the law affect policy. But dozens of countries, states, provinces around the world are lifting proof of vaccination policies and other COVID restrictions because it's the right thing to do, not because of a few protests in Alberta. I agree with you. Obviously, a number of jurisdictions are, um, and I agree with removing the restrictions. The question I have is about the timing, though. Those other jurisdictions, and I checked, they don't have field hospitals still operating. They don't have nursing students working on the wards to provide care. And, and, you know, we saw an increase of 80 plus hospitalizations yesterday. Our ICUs were up by almost 10 yesterday. So we aren't seeing that decline that you say you need to see in order to take these steps. Not accurate to say we have field hospitals up and running. We, we have uh, some very small uh, overflow capacity hospitals for pa- patients who are about to be released. Uh, I think there's 10 altogether in, our, in, in the, one of those units in uh, uh, in, Cal- in Calgary. But Dave, sorry, Shay, what we have is a uh, ongoing decline since January 24th in new hospital admissions. That's a leading indicator. We've seen a steep declines in the uh, positivity rate, in our wastewater data, in n- new daily cases, in total active cases, which have gone from 55,000 to 30,000. 
Um, we are at 87% of hospital capacity. Typically at this point of year, it's over 90%. Um, and, and again, if listen, if the restriction exemption program was making any meaningful difference in reducing transmission, we would not do this now. But look, we have to change our approach to the disease as the disease changes. And we shouldn't allow the fact that some people are doing illegal protests to prevent us from doing so. Um, and like you say, the, rest- the restriction exemption program, I-, I agree with you on that. It was to drive up vaccination, and it did. Um, the other one, you know, and you say we'll continue to monitor and see how things go in terms of removing capacity limits at restaurants and all those sorts of things that they've been talking about, 100% occupancy and things like that. What are those markers? Like back in the day, we had, you know, if we have this many hospitalizations, we do this. Mm-hmm. Um, what are those markers? Have you defined that? No, we have not uh, chosen very specific metrics because there are so many to follow. And that's why we're looking for general trends. Uh, the primary thing we'll be looking at is is the uh, hospitalization numbers, but obviously transmission figures as well. So we're looking at, at new hospital admissions, um, a, a total hospitalization. But even when you look at hospitalizations, Jay, this is where it gets complicated because like 40% of people with COVID in acute care beds are not there for COVID. Mm-hmm. They're not being treated for COVID. They, they just happen to get uh, a, a positive test, but they're generally not even symptomatic. So, you know, we've got to look at all the trends together and that's what we're doing. Um, yeah, and I've talked to doctors about that and they make the point, and I think it's a fair point, Doc, that, or, or Premier, that it doesn't matter why they can't send the guy from ER up to the bed. The bed's full, right? Uh, so if the beds are full, the beds are full. Correct. And and uh, we're at 87% of capacity in, in two or three of the five years prior to COVID, we were at higher bed occupancy than we are today. And, and let me just say that, that the real challenge is for Canada to increase our health capacity. We shouldn't be forcing, for example, kids, we shouldn't be interrupting their lives, forcing them to sit behind masks for six hours a day because we have an expensive healthcare system, uh, which is not providing sufficient capacity. This is this is a deeper issue. We'll be addressing it in our budget and in policy uh, in, in the months to come. Um, right after the announcement, of course, groups came out with some of their opposition and some of their concerns, among the municipalities. Um, and you have said that you might actually take steps to bring in legislation so that they can't amend bylaws to bring in their own restrictions and things like that. I'm wondering, is that a plan that you still think could happen, or will you allow municipalities some license in, in, in handling their own situation within their own cities? Well, we have done that in the past, and I'm happy to sit down, and it's really, the, I think, the two big city mayors yeah, yeah. who have raised this. I'm happy to sit down and talk to them about it. Um, what I would like to avoid is a situation where cities are improvising their, an entirely separate public health policy setting. This is not their responsibility. It's, it is the responsibility of the province. We're responsible for the healthcare system. And we, uh, I, you know, ultimately we have to make very difficult balancing decisions. Uh, policies that are only strictly necessary to protect uh, the, the healthcare system with while minimizing the damaging impact of restrictions on people's lives. But, that's what we're seeking to do here. I'm happy to discuss this with them. But I don't think Albertans want to end up in a situation where municipal politicians end up improvising uh, in a, a completely separate public health policy when that is not their responsibility. What's different now to, as you say, earlier in the pandemic, that was fine. They brought her in their own mask mandates and their own you know, city facility restrictions and the like. What's different now? Well, again, what I heard was the possibility of... of uh, cities bringing in their own separate uh, restriction exemption programs. And if they did so, it would 
not be based on any data. It would be based, I think, on um, public health political theater because it's not moving up vaccine rates. It is not reducing transmission. It is creating division. So what is the point? Uh, so I, I don't I don't think we could passively sit by if uh, municipal governments were to uh, improvise a policy that is having no meaningful benefit in public health terms, uh, but is having a, a divisive and, and damaging effect on society. Kids in schools, uh, masks gone as of Monday. Um, some groups concerned, others applauding this. As you say, I mean, there's all kinds of different viewpoints on this. But the fact that um, the education minister yesterday came out with a statement saying, we will not allow school boards to bring in their own mask mandates or their own mask rulings. Again, the question is, is why? Why, why Bigfoot it and say, this is what the province says, so that's the way it is? Well, you know why? Because... After two years, I think as a society, we should say enough already with COVID restrictions affecting the lives of kids. Kids have paid a disproportionate share of the burden uh, for a a disease which has uh, a a tiny uh, threat to the the, uh, health of of children. In fact, COVID is no more dangerous to kids than, than the typical flu influenza. And yet kids have paid a disproportionate price. Um, we should not look at children as, uh, quotes, vectors of transmission. I see the, the teachers union uh, is threatening to sue the government to force kids to wear masks six hours a day um, because they, quotes, create an unsafe workplace. This is bizarre and it's time to end it. Uh, it's time for us to focus any necessary measures on adults who who are at some meaningful risk of the older they are uh, from COVID-19. So I, I just don't, like, I think, again, uh, we shouldn't let special interest groups create political pressure to force kids to pay the price for disease that primarily affects adults. Um, I want to ask you about one of the comments you made yesterday about stigmatizing the unvaccinated. And I know you've tweeted about this this morning, but our, a lot of our listeners aren't on Twitter. Um, you compared it to the stigmatization of HIV AIDS patients in the 80s. Um, people were, were taken aback, and frankly, Premier, and you know this, they were angry uh, by that comparison. You know, the patients denied some, some basic fundamental rights. Uh, you tweeted an apology this morning. Just uh, uh, walk us through that for people who aren't on Twitter. Um, just uh, what happened there? Well, I was wrong to make the analogy, and it's the hazard of improvising an historical analogy without thinking it through. What I was, and I, I, I do apologize, it was, it was an, uh, the wrong thing to say. What I was trying to get at is this. I keep hear more and more people saying that they're afraid of being in a restaurant or a business with somebody who is unvaccinated. Well, I think that is an, well, it is an irrational fear. People who are vaccinated now are just about as likely to transmit the virus as people who are unvaccinated. That's not because the vaccines aren't working. They're extremely effective at reducing severe outcomes. But with the high transmissibility of the Omicron variant, plus the waning effect of the second doses, most most Albertans got that like eight, nine months ago, um, there is uh, no measurable difference in the chances of transmission between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. So this is an irrational fear that's being spread to stigmatize, you know, for 750,000 unvaccinated Albertans and at 360,000 of whom are unvaccinated adults, it appears they're highly unlikely to get vaccinated. I disagree with their choice, but Shay, we have to learn to live together and, and we cannot end up with fear driving a kind of this permanent stigmatization of people who are unvaccinated. We have to learn to live with civility and respect for the choices that people have made. 
Um, uh, one other issue before I let you get out of here, and of course that's the situation that is gripping our, our border down at, down at Coots. And, and like you've said, and I, and I agree 100%, we don't want politicians directing police forces to do this and to do that. Uh, but at the same time, you brought in laws strictly for incidents like this. Are you frustrated? Are you, are you wishing the police did more? What, what do you want to see happen with the Coots border crossing? Well, I am frustrated, and it's actually, I understand today, 38 uh, uh, rigs or semis at the border crossing itself. Uh, and let's put that in perspective. We've got 60,000 uh, licensed truck drivers in Alberta. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, 60,000 licensed trucks and 300,000 licensed uh, trucks and 60,000 drivers. So this is a tiny, tiny number of people in comparison uh, by breaking the law, they are creating a public safety hazard. They are inconveniencing thousands of truckers just trying to do their business who have to reroute to other ports of entry. They're hurting farmers and livestock uh, producers uh, by slowing down exports. Uh, and uh, they have to end this. And we have made it clear to the RCMP that we expect them to enforce the law and maintain order. They're responsible, of course, for the operational tactics and how that is done. In terms of the tools we've given them, I do note that yesterday, for the first time, the uh, Defense of Critical Infrastructure Act passed in the legislature last year was actually used for the first time in a charge against somebody who was inciting uh, a violation of that law. So all, we've given the RCMP all of the resources they need, both in terms of legislation, policy, and other resources. And uh, it, what, what's happening has to end, period, full stop. How do you respond to the allegations? And they get harder and harder to defend as every day goes by, the fact that if this was a group of Indigenous protesters or anti-oil protesters, they'd have been given the bums rush a week ago. The law doesn't apply equally to different groups. Depending on what you're protesting, you get a pass. Um, how do you defend against accusations like that? Because it gets harder every day, Premier, that this goes on. Well, I, I don't like it one little bit, but I, I don't think that analogy uh, is, is accurate. If you remember the so-called uh, um, land defender rail blockades uh, a year, uh, sorry, two years ago. Uh, it w- those but were we not... didn't have the law then. That's why the law came in. Well, the, the law is... <laughs> there, there was, it was never lawful to block a railway. And I've seen, unfortunately, with much frustration, um, those kinds of blockades go on sometimes for weeks. I think that is wrong. That's why we brought in this legislation. We've made it clear to the RCMP, our provincial police force, that there's a the government and the public expects the laws to be maintained, but they are responsible for enforcement decision. It's a very complex and fluid situation right now. As the RCMP said yesterday, they've been unable to obtain towing equipment, for example. So I respect the fact they've got some really difficult operational uh, issues to work through. But at the end of the day, uh, what the protesters are doing uh, is uh, it's dangerous, it's illegal, it's damp- it affects the lives of others. There is no right to block a road, at least of all uh, a border crossing, uh, and uh, it simply has to end. Uh, Premier, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, sir. As Premier Jason Kenney. Province has taken some steps to make their lives a whole lot easier as they've now agreed to fund committed or continued glucose monitors for some diabetics under the age of 18 in the province of Alberta. Now, to get the details on what this means and how this works, we're joined by Dr. Peter Sr., who is director of the Alberta Diabetes Institute. Doctor, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. So these continuous... Glucose monitors. Uh, essentially, it's um, it's self monitoring, right? Just explain how they work. Yeah, I guess 
Traditionally, uh, for people with diabetes, they've relied on doing a finger stick and measuring their blood glucose several times a day. But they're really just snapshots because glucose is important every minute of every day. And the devices which have now come to market over the last few years are able to essentially measure glucose in the body all of the time. And some of them give you a real-time readout. So um, you can see your blood sugar changing moment by moment by moment. And the other huge benefit is that if it's going out of range, either too high or too low, it can give you alert so that you you can take action before you run into problems. Wow. Now, is it uh, something that's like an external implant or is it implanted under the skin? How how do these monitors work? They're devices which, you know, sit on top of the skin. They kind of have got a self-adhesive pad, but there's a little sensor which actually goes through the skin. Um, It's a very sort of fine plastic filament, probably about the width of, of two human hairs, so it doesn't feel uncomfortable. You wouldn't notice it if you're wearing it, but when you take it it off, yeah. you can see this little sensor, this probe that, that sort of sits in inside uh, or in, in the skin. Um, but they generally will last for maybe a week or 10 days or two weeks, depending on the product, uh, and uh, then they, they can be replaced. So you might have seen commercials on TV with a little disc on the back of somebody's arm. Yes, yeah. It's those kinds of devices that we're talking about. Okay. And and I also read that they can work sort of in conjunction with insulin pumps where essentially, I mean, I don't want to see you're, you're living free of diabetes, but it's sort of, it's regulating itself. Really, you don't have to be involved as you might be, like you say, with finger pricks and all the rest and injections. It's It's sort of managing that for you. Yeah, I think I think you know there's various analogies that you might like to think about. Um, it, it's it's a, you know maybe it's um, a little bit like cruise control in a car. So previously, people had to you know look at their blood sugar. They had to think about what they were eating. They had to think about what they were doing, and then they had to kind of make a plan and work out. Okay, how much insulin should I take? Yeah. Now we've had coverage in Alberta for a few years now for insulin pumps. And insulin pumps can deliver insulin, you know, without having to give multiple different injections each day, but they still require the user to weigh up all those factors and then make a choice about how much to take or how much not to take. And we've now got the potential for the the sensors to integrate with the, the pump and essentially let a computer make yeah. those decisions to, to kind of, you know, free up people's brains to do other things. And I think that's the that's the prospect we now have available to far more people, uh, which is most exciting to me. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, now, the province stepping in to fund this, what's the cost? I mean, how much money are we talking about the province, you know, saving people who go this route? Yeah, I think the the... If we're thinking about the sensors, you know, you're, you're sort of probably looking between two and four thousand dollars per year, depending on the the product and and the device. Um, so that's the the sort of the magnitude of of cost. Now, I guess against that, you, you might then sort of say, well, if we're using this technology, we don't need to fund the strips and. You know, glucose strips 
you know, are between 75 cents and a dollar each. So if you're doing four or seven tests a day, you know, you, you might be at seven tests a day, you know, that can get you up to a yeah. couple of thousand dollars a year already. And the information from the CGM is much, much richer um, than uh, you, you get from, from finger sticks. And again, the contrast might be, you know, looking at a picture book versus watching a video. You know, you're seeing these just slices of action with your finger sticks, whereas seeing the real-time progress is a much richer uh, source of information. Uh, it sounds very exciting. The question I have, though, is why under 18? I mean, this would benefit any, anybody with diabetes, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think the... Uh, I think, you know, it, it potentially can help, you know, lots and lots of people, including adults. I think the, you know, the the, the, the rationale, the logic might well be that, you know, children are going to, to find it much harder. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they, they're not able to make all these, these decisions. And if you were a parent with a child with diabetes, you know, generally you would be making the choices about insulin doses and timing, things like that. But if you send your child off to school, well, you're not there to do that. And the child may not have, you know, the the, the kind of the skills, I guess, to integrate all these factors. If they've got gym class, if, um, you know, they've got a slight fever today, you know, how do they factor these things in? And so the ability to kind of automate that, you know, you know, for people who can't do it themselves, that is, is potentially an advantage. And we know that children with diabetes, it's harder to get their blood sugars into range. The stakes are a little bit higher. The, the risks for having dangerously low blood sugars are, you know, I think every parent's worst nightmare. And so I think it, it's, it's a critical period uh, of growth and development. And I think if we can optimize health of children with diabetes, that will have benefits for them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, but but you're right that it's not unique that this technology will help um, children. It will certainly help adults as well. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, uh, exciting news. Um, doctor, thanks so much for your time, giving us some insight on how it all works and, and what it'll mean. I appreciate it. Great. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. That's Dr. Peter Sr., who is director of the Alberta Diabetes Institute. Very cool. So essentially, I guess... You know, as he was saying, you know, think of it as cruise control. You've got the continuous glucose monitor implanted into the skin. You've got the insulin pump. And if they're talking to each other, it's monitoring your glucose and monitoring your insulin levels, all independent of you having to do anything. Pretty amazing stuff. Great technology. Uh, we're going to have a quick conversation right now, though, about the, you might remember this, it wasn't that long ago, I don't even know if it was a month ago, that the province struck a nonpartisan committee to try and address opioid overdoses. And uh, that committee is falling apart before it even really got started. Um, it included 12 MLAs from across party lines, but four of the opposition MLAs have decided, no, they're out. They're stepping down from their positions. They call it a political stunt. They have no intention of lending credibility to the committee's work, they say. Now, two of the advocacy groups that are on the committee have done the same thing and said the same thing. Each and every, and Mom Stop the Harm, have decided they won't be involved with this committee either. Joining us now to tell us more about the reasoning behind this, we have Petra Schultz, who is one of the founding directors of Mom Stop the Harm, one of the groups that was on the committee but isn't anymore. Uh, Petra, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. 
Thank you, Shay. Um, always good to speak to you. Yeah, I, I look forward to it too. Um, so explain to me, why, why did you decide that this was a necessary step for you and your group to sort of back away from the committee and say you're not going to be involved? I must say I had some reservations for, about the committee right from the start uh, because of some statements Minister Ellis made even before the committee was even struck his comments about safe supply. Um, he likened it to the overprescribing that we had um, uh, in the past. Um, we don't have that problem anymore. Actually, recent reports say that opioid prescribing is down to um, uh, yeah, some of its lowest levels. Uh, um, some argue maybe maybe too low, but they liken safe supply to overprescribing, which is a totally wrong comparison because um, overprescribing was too often to people who shouldn't have had opioid in the first place and who were opioid naive, where a safe supply is for people who are currently using and are using problematically, are using street drugs and are at risk of dying. That's that's two totally different things. So that made me skeptical. Also, I participated in the, uh, the supervised consumption side review back in 2019. And I must say it was a deeply traumatic process and the report that came out was uh, was proven flawed by uh, scientists that reviewed it. And none of the evidence that we presented, none of the words of the uh, hundreds of people who spoke in support ever made it into this report. So I was skeptical, but I thought, well, this is different. It's a bipartisan committee of the legislature. There are MLAs from both sides, um, at least. So um, I was prepared to engage in it. But then last week there was a statement from the UCP caucus announcing their speakers, uh, as they called it, saying that uh, they were focusing on experts and not radicals and activists. Um, since my name and the name of you and Thompson from each and every wasn't on that list, I could only assume that we fall in the radicals and activist uh, category. Now, Yes, I'm an advocate and, and sometimes activist, but most of all, I'm a bereaved mom who was thrown into this by the loss of my youngest pal, Danny. And, and my expertise comes from what families have learned. And, and, and I was ready to share why we need safe supply. But then I looked at that list of panel and it included people like an author from California named Schellenberger, um, who wrote a book called San Francisco, How Radicals Have Ruined Cities. And the, the panel didn't include a single person with any expertise in safe supply, anybody who does research, anybody who practices, anybody who receives it, uh, or not the panel, rather the, the experts that right. were called. And um, that kind of was, um, at that point, I thought, no, I can't legitimize that process. Um, okay, two things. First of all, you're right. It was Calgary Cross MLA, Mickey Amory, who said the committee would, quote, follow the evidence and use the information provided by North America's leading experts, not the radicals or the activists, which, um, yeah, I mean, before you even get started, is a remarkably tone-deaf thing to say. I agree with you 100%. But in response to the other one, in terms of who the the speakers or the presenters were going to be to this committee, the government has said, you know what, We have the door was open. The NDP uh, suggested six speakers, and we said, okay, let's invite them too. So um, was there a, pro- a problem with either your groups or with the NDP or somebody not presenting the kinds of speakers that you wanted to hear from? I mean, did the government reject any speakers? Well, 
Um, uh, the government didn't reject speakers, but the process they used was highly unusual because a committee like this that is supposed to look at the evidence on a topic, in this case, safe supply, um, it's not a it's not a hockey match where you have two opposing teams yeah. putting their best players up. It's supposed to look a process, and usually you get staffers from the ministry who look at, okay, who are our experts in Alberta, and if you don't have any, who are the experts in Canada, and if you ha- don't have anybody... Who do we need to look at internationally? And that process wasn't followed at all. It was just the UCP putting their um, um, uh, so-called experts forward. And and the, the NDP had put our names forward, um, but under the assumption that a normal committee process would be followed also that normally the committee reviews the slate of speakers who speaks, who, who provides written submission. I mean, you don't want to listen to 20 people. That's yeah. Uh, that, that's that's a long time. So the entire uh, process of how such a committee should circumvent, uh, should work, was circumvented. And you can't look at, you need to look at both sides of an issue to, to get at the evidence. And uh, everyone um, the UCP has put forward so far is against safe supply. There were no recommendations from the ministry staff. So uh, that that process uh, derailed before it even properly began. Um, and last one, and then I'll let you go. Um, in terms of, and you, and I'm I'm sure you've thought about this, but just walk us through um, the own internal debate that you had in terms of. I'm sure there's some value in being at the table and at least being witness to how these committees go and being able to say this is why these committees. Um, don't work or are prejudged or, you know, I sat at the table, I witnessed it all. And also a, an opportunity to maybe affect change. I mean, is there some benefit to saying, okay, this is probably an imperfect situation, but I'm still going to see some benefit by being part of it? That is what I thought when I participated in the SAS review. I made a one-hour presentation. I did a survey of our members. I, uh, I presented uh, the perspective of families, our experience. I made a one-hour presentation. My son and husband spoke in, at the evening event. There were so many people that spoke, and uh, the report in the end omitted all of that information. So I wasn't confident to start with. And but I was prepared, and I I we yeah, remain to be prepared. I'm happy to speak to any MLA. I'm happy to speak to the minister, the premier. I'm happy to speak to anybody about safe supply um, in in a fair and open dialogue. Uh, that that door remains open. Um, and um, I invite um, anyone who's interested to contact us and engage in the dialogue. And actually, we are looking at some possibilities of maybe having um, a, a discussion panel on the topic uh, that we organize, because I think it's important for Albertans to learn why we call for safe supply. I just looked at the data from Dr. Hinshaw to the committee. Um, over those death rates between 21 and 2020, like from 2020 to 21 for January to October, October went up 34%. Imagine that, mm-hmm. 34%. Oh. And Edmonton and Lethbridge, where consumption sites were closed, are the highest hit cities. So we have to act at this, and we have to pull out all the stops. And if we what we have done in the past isn't working, we need to look at new ideas. Yeah, and I think we need to do something. And as we've said many times before, Petra, 
we got to do it now. I mean, we can't keep, you know, it's just we're not making any headway. Uh, I appreciate your time. It's always a delight to chat, and uh, we'll talk again, Petra. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much, and thanks to your listeners. Okay, talk to you later. That is Bye. Petra Schultz, who is uh, one of the founders of Moms Stop the Harm, and as you heard, she got into this mess not by choice, not even remotely close. Uh, she lost her own son to an opioid overdose, and ever since has decided to try and work to prevent it and to save other lives. Uh, She's in it for all the right reasons. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.